It's a great pleasure to see all of you and to be here at the Asian Society. Since coming to the United States, I've been congratulated by many people, many, many times, and always I say to them, it's not yet the time for congratulations. We've just, we, we have just got to the beginning of the road, and there's a long way to go before we can claim that we have the right to be congratulated. The long road that we are going to start on is the democratization of our country. This is beginning only now. Many, many, thing, many people think that this started in 2010 when uh, the uh, so-called civilian government came into power. But I do not know whether many of you are aware of the fact that 80% of the members of the government then were retired members of the military. And so it was really still military rule in effect. And of course, there's a constitution that provides the military with a very special role in the political process of the country. I won't go into the details of it now. If you're really interested in Burma, you can read the constitution. <laughs> and that will show how interested you really are. But this is one of the challenges, and we contested our by, by elect, the, the by-elections of 2012 uh, on three issues. We promised that if we were elected, we would try. We only give promises that we think we could give. We don't, we don't believe that giving promises easily and then saying, sorry, it was too difficult, is the way we should go about uh, trying to rehabilitate habilitate our country. So we said that we would try, what we would try to do would be to amend the constitution, to bring internal peace, and also to, to, um, to establish rule of law. These three are connected and very necessary. We need peace in our country. We have had armed conflict in our country from the very day it became independent on the 4th of January, 1948. A group of, a, of one of our ethnic groups, the Karen, rose up in rebellion on the very day we achieved independence. And since then, there have been many, many more rebellions. When I was a child, we were, the, the expression multicolored insurgents was well known to all of us because there were the red communists, there were the white communists, there were the, uh, it, it, it was also varied. And we took it for granted that this was how it was. Of course, this is not how it is in other countries, not in all countries. There are countries almost as bad as ours which have not yet known peace, which have known nothing but conflict and internal dissension. We are now at a time, at a, at a juncture of our history where we have the opportunity to put an end to internal conflict. This is why we have given great importance to the peace process that started some time back and I am very happy to give the credit to the previous administration. They started the peace process. They started negotiating with various ethnic groups uh, with regard to a national ceasefire, ceasefire arrangement. Now, this has not been completed. There were 16 groups which uh, had been involved in the negotiations with regard to the ceasefire agreement, but only 14 signed the agreement. Uh, only eight signed the agreement, so there were eight left. Now there are three other little groups which have emerged since then, and these are linked to the eight who have not yet signed the NCA. And unless we can get all of them to sign, it will be difficult first to claim that we have been able to achieve peace throughout our land. So the national, uh, our, our Union Peace Conference started on the 31st of August this year, that is to say just about a, not, not quite a month ago. We, when we declared that we would be holding 
the opening ceremony of our peace conference on the 31st of August, there were those who said it was too early. I, I disagreed with that. I think it was, in fact, too late. We should have had a peace process, a peace conference, many, many decades back. Then our country would have suffered so much less. Without unity, it is difficult for a country to maintain its position of, of uh, success in any field. At one time, some of you may know, we were considered the, the, the nation most likely to succeed in Southeast Asia, but we were not able to maintain this position of success for political reasons, not for economic reasons. This is something of which I have to remind many people because the perception nowadays is that strengthen the economy and everything will go well. It's the economy that matters. If, you are, if your people are rich, if they're materially well off, you will not have any problems in any areas. Now, if this were true, you would have no problems in the United States at all. <laughs> and so you will understand that there are other issues than economic ones. And for us, that is peace. We lost our democratic governance in 1969, not because of economic problems, but for political reasons. Now, I will not go into the details of that now. It's a, a whole subject in itself and very interesting, but it will divert me from what I've been asked to talk about, which is now. Uh, you know, people ask me to make speeches, and they usually tell me what they want me to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> As a good guest, I feel that I'm bound to oblige them in some way or the other, although I do, do uh, manage to weave in what I want to say as well. <laughs> so uh, now we have been elected to government, we who were the opposition for nearly 30 years. The National League for Democracy was founded in 1988, and since then we were in opposition until last year when we won the general election when we won with an overwhelming majority, but oh, an overwhelming majority that still does not give us the right to amend the constitution. That's part of the old constitution, which gives the military, really, the right of veto with regard to any meaningful constitutional amendment. 25% of the members of all the legislatures in our country meaning to say the union legislature as well as the regional and state legislatures are from the military. They are nominated by the commander-in-chief. And to amend the vital parts of the constitution, which would make it truly democratic, we need to have more than 75% of the agreement of the members of our legislatures. Now that means that even if all the elected representatives from various parties all agreed on an important amendment, at least one brave soldier would have to stand with them and say, I agree that it should be amended. And I'm sure our soldiers are very brave on the battlefield, but when it comes to the legislature, they vote as they're ordered to vote. I think General David Patrias is somewhere in the audience. <laughs> And I suppose he would say that it is the duty of um, soldiers to obey the commanders, and I agree with that. I've often said that if they were not so, what would happen if the commander says, now get into your battle stations or whatever you call them, and we are all going to go into battle at, um, well, at half past this morning and it wouldn't do if soldiers were to say now wait a minute I haven't yet seen my mother <laughs> and I've got to get home and ask her whether she thinks it's a good idea it doesn't um, armies cannot work like that so I'm perfectly in agreement that the commander should be obeyed but our military commanders should have no role to play in the civilian governance of a democratic country and what we want is a truly democratic country. I value our military for many reasons, 
not the least important of which is that it was founded by my father. It was founded by my father to fight for the independence of the nation and to protect the freedom of the people. And that is what I would like our army to do. That should be its main responsibility. We have to amend the Constitution. That is one of the, reason, the, one of the, uh, the reasons why we contested the by-elections in 2012. We want it made clear to our people that there was a need to amend the Constitution. And we wanted no rule of law because we think that rule of law is necessary if we truly wanted a democratic society. When I was in the legislature uh, a few months ago, I met a group of law students and I asked them, what are laws for? And they looked at each other and thought for a bit and uh, one of them said, to punish wrongdoers. And the others all agreed. And I was rather taken aback. I said, no, from my point of view, laws are there to make sure that we, ca we all live together in harmony and in security. That is what laws are meant to do, not just to punish wrongdoers. But this is uh, one of the reasons why we put rule of law at the top of our priority when we contested the elections, the by-elections of 2012. Our people needed to understand what laws were for and what laws can do for us who are individuals seeking to be part of a society that will respect our rights and also encourage us to bear our own responsibilities. And of course, we talked about the need for permanent peace for in, an end to inter, uh, internal conflict. Because unless a country is at peace, we will not be able to progress in the long run. In the short run, we may be able to achieve small economic miracles, but we will not be able to maintain those if there is no peace in the country. So we want peace, we want development. These two are linked one to the other. But peace is something that our people have been longing for for a long time. And also, they want lives that are secure materially as well as politically and socially. So we have to develop our country as well. There is so much that needs to be done. The National League for Democracy has never promised the people what we, are, what we do not think we will be able to deliver. So when we contested the elections last year, we said we would work towards certain goals, we would do our best, but we would not give rash promises. We could not guarantee that we would be able to make the country prosperous and peaceful within a short period of time. But that is what we will start out to do as soon as we were able to form an administration. We won the elections last year, but because of the nature of our constitution, we were able to take office only at the end of March, which means that we lost five months in the transition. Now we were officially, we have five years in which to do our work, but in effect, we only have about four and a half. And already, almost six months are passed. So we have four years left in which to lay the foundation for a truly democratic society. And in doing this, we need the help of all our friends and well-wishers. The United States has been a good friend to us. When I say to us, I mean to our country, to our people, to the National League for Democracy, to me as an individual. And for that, I'm happy to be able to say thank you to all of you today. We will always remain friends with, with the United States and with other nations across the world. When we became independent in 1948, that was our foreign policy, to remain 
to maintain good relations with all countries all over the world. We were one of the first non-aligned countries. We decided that aligning ourselves with either of the two powers during the Cold War was not to our benefit or to the benefit of the world as a whole. We do not believe in encouraging polarization then, and we do not believe now either in encouraging polarization or division. I don't believe in divide and rule. I think if everybody is friendly, each with the other, then we all, we all benefit from it. We all profit from it. So I do not think divide, divide and rule is a short-term measure and can only be successful for a short term. What we want now is of, of all friends of Burma to join together to see what they can do to take us forward in our road towards genuine democracy. Businessmen, we invite to come to do business in our country and to teach those of our people who are not yet familiar with business practices, best practices. Those who are interested in humanitarian issues, we invite you to come and help with humanitarian issues in our country. But we would ask you to understand first what our needs are and what the needs of our people are. Humanitarian needs are not just to do with food and shelter and clothes. It's to do with tolerance. It's to do with understanding that rights and responsibilities go together. Everywhere we go when we were campaigning, for, uh, during, for, uh, during the, ele the elections, we made it quite clear that democracy has its responsibilities as well as its rights. Too many people think only of rights. I'm told that entitlement is a big word in the United States today. And I would like service to be as big a word, to serve. We should be proud to be able to serve. To serve is much greater than to be able to demand what you think you are entitled to. I don't think any of us is born with entitlement. We are all human beings with our own human dignity. And I believe that this must be recognized by all. But it's not an entitlement. It's a need. Human rights are human needs. If human rights were entitlements, then we would have to resolve the problem in a way which will create those who are against human rights and those who are for human rights. Of course, this is the situation still today. There are those who are for human rights and those who are against human rights. But if we could make people understand that human rights are human needs and each and every one of us ha has these needs and if we could recognize other people's needs as, at the same time as we recognize ours, then we will be promoting human rights. Too many people are interested simply in their own needs and in their own entitlements rather than those of others. So rights and responsibilities must must always be addressed as a whole, as two halves of a whole. You have rights, you have responsibilities. And that is what we want our people to be able to do. So we would like to learn from you, you who have been living in a democratic system for many, well, for more centuries, because Eight, nine, well, we can say many centuries or a few centuries. Anyway, you have been living in the system, but you know how many problems there are. You can't afford to be complacent, much less we can afford to be complacent. How can we afford to be complacent when you can't? We have not yet even got to the end of the road, whereas you have been there some time ago. But what did you find at the end of the road? More challenges. That is how it's always going to be. That is how this world works. 
Wherever we get to, there will be challenges. And I've often said that the purpose of education is to equip us to meet the challenges that will come us as we go, come up as we go through life. So that is the last thing that would, I, I would ask you to do for us. Help us to meet the challenges that we will have to face. There are many. It's political, social, economic. I, I will not go into the details of what these are because I think uh, Kevin has prepared them in his questions and I will <laughs> answer them then. So I was just supposed to tell you what we would, well, I'm, as I said, I'm usually told what, kind, what, I, what to say in my speeches. And I was supposed to tell you what we would like the United States to do. The United States, there's the United States government, there's the United States Congress, they're the people of the United States, and there are various organizations like you. So all I can say is that all of you, in your own way, please help us to meet the challenges that we will certainly have to face as we proceed over the next four years to lay the foundation for a truly democratic Federal Union of Burma. Thank you. Well, State Councillor, I'm now totally intimidated. Uh, you've told me that I've told you what to say in your speech. and that He didn't tell me what to say uh, to somebody else who said that. <laughs> uh, that's a trick among politicians. We don't reveal that publicly. You know that. Um, and, uh, and you said I had a wad of questions for you. But I listened very carefully to um, your comments, and a lot of your remarks were focused on the transition to a full democracy. And you said very eloquently and clearly that there is no room for the military within a civilian democracy. Uh, I didn't say there was no room for them. They've got their own room. <laughs> As uh, the State Councillor said before, we came on stage. Kevin, you asked the questions. I'll be answering them exactly as I so choose. <laughs> and, um, but taking you up on that question, uh, which is the fact that you have 25% still in the parliamentary institutions, both national level and down, and I, when I visited you first in uh, Yangon in 2011, it was 80% back then, 80%. The positions in the National Assembly were 80% military. No, no, uh, 25%. Back then? Oh, you mean, you mean the, the, the elected seats? Yeah. Well, they were ex-military. Yes. Ex-military. The, the, the USDP party was the majority party. And, uh, of course, all the leaders of the USDP were um, retired generals, or perhaps they were brigadiers, but anyway, retired army officers. And uh, the, many of the MPs elected under the badge of the USDP were retired military officers. And so when I look at your future transition to, let's call it, full democratic institutions without a mandatory occupation of a certain number of seats by the military. How do you see that unfolding over time? There were comments reported recently by the head of the Burmese military saying it may take five to ten years. How do you see this unfolding? Well, uh, I... I don't believe in astrology, so I can't predict, you know, I can't say I, uh, this is going to happen in five years or ten years. But I don't, neither can he, I don't think. Uh, in the end, it will be up to the people. And, of course, we have to do a lot of the work. We have to convince the people of the need for change. And by the people, I mean members of the military as well because they are part of our country. They are also our citizens. And we want to make them understand, we want to convince them that this change is necessary for the whole country, including members of the military. 
a professional army that is loved and respected by the people is worth far, far more than an army that has political powers not in line with the aspirations of the people. When I last visited you, which was just last year, um, and before these extraordinary elections, and uh, watching you on the campaign trail was a, a sight for sore eyes uh, for the international community. But I remember that on that visit talking to various representatives also of your military, and conversations that we had with them uh, in this capacity as president of this Asia Policy Institute was that if you go back to barracks fully and abandon your formal political role over time, then surely as a professional military, one of the great benefits which will flow will be a full and open professional relationship, say, with the United States Armed Forces. And so military men's eyes usually light up at that point because they love exercises, they're they proud of their professional achievements in the feat of arms. Um, I notice that the United States has, and the United States Senate has introduced some openings for select military to military engagement with the uh, Burmese Armed Forces. How do you see that unfolding in terms of providing strong, as it were, professional encouragement uh, for the military to become like any other normal professional military in a democracy? I think it's a good thing for our military to engage with militaries from with other armies from um, from democratic countries because it makes them understand how things work in a democracy that the army uh, is not involved in politics but that doesn't does not in any way uh, make them less in fact in some countries such as the united kingdom i'm i'm told that the army is the most respected institution in the country according to to uh, uh, the research that they've done, that uh, the people think that the army are even better in some ways than uh, those in the National Health Service. And why? Apparently the answer is because people see them as selfless. People see them as working not for themselves, but for, for whomsoever they are asked to protect, including non UK citizens. For example, when they were in Sierra Leone, I believe that was two years ago, uh, the people of Britain were really proud of their military. They thought that the soldiers were so good and so selfless and so prepared to protect human life and human well-being. So I want our army, our military, to associate more with military personnel from other countries. So I think we should begin in that way, by introducing them to the values of democratic armies. So there's a new job for General Petraeus, who you mentioned before. <laughs> uh, David, we send you as a special envoy of the Asia Society to work there on, the, on the, this uh, new role for the Burmese I'll tell country. him what to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean by civilian authority over the military. <laughs> Thank you. That shows you're a good general. <laughs> I do like the way in this country, because uh, I'm a foreigner living here in the United States, that our uh, servicemen routinely refer to the commander-in-chief the president, the highest... Well, uh, I, I like that office. very much. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, let's look at the, uh, the peace process, which you've mm. referred to in your remarks. Uh, you haven't been in office long as a government. Um, the process has begun. You've referred to and acknowledged graciously, I think, the work begun under your predecessor, President Thane Sane. Um, Eight signatures, eight still to come, and three at the margins. Uh, in terms of any external assistance in this process, uh, as you would judge fit and appropriate, uh, what might that be? Or do you see it as exclusively internal uh, for the peoples of Burma to resolve? In the end, of course, we've got to sort out our own problems. But I do believe that everybody can help 
if they have a will to do so. And I think in this day and age, it's no use saying, oh, we have no use for foreigners. Foreigners must not be involved. Because who is a foreigner these days? People are in and out of every country. You talk about globalization when you want something from the, the international community. And then uh, when you don't want them uh, to, to point out that perhaps you're not doing things right, then you say, well, don't come and interfere in our domestic problems. I don't think that if we are doing right, we need to fear anybody's scrutiny. And this is what I said this morning at the United Nations. This is with regard to the situation in the Rakhine, which, in which I think many of you are interested. And it's a big problem because we want harmony and we want peace and we want progress. The Rakhine is a poor state. The Rakhines are poor, the Muslims, they are poor. And we want everybody there to be safe and secure. Now, um, what we've been trying to do is to find a way of relieving communal tension and putting an end to communal strife. And to that purpose, we created a commission headed by Dr. Kofi Annan, because this is a matter in which the international community has been interested for quite a number of years. Uh, it became an issue that was discussed in the United Nations as long ago as 2010. So we need somebody with an international stature to head the commission that is meant to look into the real problems that are plaguing the Rakhine state. And of course, some, some political parties started protesting against this. And they said that we were dragging, by, by appointing a foreigner, Dr. Kofi Annan, as the head of a commission, and including other foreigners, because there are two others. Uh, we were dragging a domestic issue onto the international stage. Well, we explained that it had been in the, on the international stage for some time, <clears throat> and we had not been able to do anything about it. And that we are not afraid of international scrutiny. Why should we be afraid of international scrutiny if we're doing what is right? We should not be afraid of any scrutiny if we believe that we are doing what is right. And Kofi, as you say, is um, not exactly inexperienced. He's no. a person with phenomenal experience. And, uh, and it's not unique for a country to invite someone internationally uh, to work on a particular problem at home. Um, on the rest of the um, peace process within your country, uh, I noticed at the um, Pang Long conference that you had, the ground groundbreaking peace uh, negotiations, uh, which, which commenced not long ago, uh, China also had a role there um, uh, as a mediator, I presume in relation to a particular part uh, of the overall um, uh, domestic disputes and border-related disputes uh, uh, in I, I'm not quite sure what you mean by saying a role as a mediator because I don't think uh, we have this role for anybody except uh, members of the National Reconciliation and Peace Center. Well, let me put it more broadly. In terms of international help, can the Chinese be of help? Yeah. Everybody can be of mm. help. It's not just the Chinese, and we can't welcome help from anybody who is in a, in a position to promote peace in our country. From the Chinese, from the Australians, from the Americans, who's, whoever is interested in truly promoting peace in our country. Because there are some groups which are not really interested in peace. They are only interested in their influence with regard to the peace process. On the broader relationship with your neighbours, and I'll pursue just for a moment, um, that's say the economic relationship with a very large neighbour, China, an economy which affects, frankly, uh, most economies represented in this room. Certainly for my country, Australia, it's our largest economic partner. Uh, going back to well before you were formally in office in 2011, we had the suspension of that very large dam project, uh, the Maitsone Dam, I think if my pronunciation is vaguely yes, correct. 
which is... Yes, it's, uh, your pronunciation is very bad. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> if you like, I could render it in Mandarin, but... Uh, <laughs> and my Mandarin's considerably better than my Burmese, which is... That's, on... n- that's no use if you're speaking <laughs> Burmese. <laughs> <laughs> you're absolutely right, State Councillor. By the way, after you've studied Chinese, your head's full. You just don't go onto other languages. It's, it's just, it's gone. The, uh, on that dam project, though, which has achieved quite a bit of international publicity, um, and I see that there are uh, negotiations that you've been having about taking the project forward again with the Chinese, how is all that going? Because it has been a prominent uh, international matter, which the international well, we, we, we have established a commission to look into this, and this commission is made of a, of experts. Uh, it's headed by the uh, deputy speaker of our lower house, who is a Chen, and of course, as uh, those who have been following the the dam um, dam negotiations will know that uh, it is going to, it was going to be situated in the Chen state, so. He heads the commission, and there are many experts, experts on the environment, on water management, on uh, engineering, various, various aspects of the Mission project. And uh, we will, they will all, well, I'm, I'm not a member of the commission, they will look, be looking into this matter. Then we have experts on contracts, on and. Uh, on social impact on the environment, etc. M- many, many issues ne- which need to be addressed. And they will look into this matter and they will come up with a report. And we will be guided by the report of this commission. Well, that sounds like a, a sound process, uh, looking at all dimensions of what, certainly in my experience, the dam projects are multifaceted, multi community impacts, etc. In this audience tonight, we have uh, people who are from across um, uh, the U.S. Uh, business community and investment community, people who know the world and people who either are doing business in your country or the wider Southeast Asian region or who want to. In terms of the economic strategy for your country, um, perhaps you could spend just a few minutes explaining how you see that unfolding and what particular interests you have as a nation in attracting foreign direct investment. Well, I had to speak to the um, U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the U.S. ASEAN Business Council while I was in Washington. So I don't want to repeat all the things that I said there. But uh, if you're interested, I think perhaps you could get a copy of what I said to them. (laughs) But we have just... uh, We have not yet uh, uh, finished the process, but we have submitted the draft of uh, of our investment law to the legislature, and we hope that it will be endorsed very soon and that it will become a law. Uh, Previously, we had two investment laws, one for foreigners and one for domestic businessmen, the foreign direct investment law and the domestic investment law. And this is not pleasing to many of our Um, prospective investors and we decided that we would have to change it and we would have to have one investment law and this is now uh, I understand in the hands of the legislature they will be going through it so I can't really tell you exactly what it's going to be like because in the end lawmaking is the responsibility and the prerogative of the legislature they may amend bits of it uh, they may reject bits of it or they may pass the whole as it has been submitted to as has been submitted to them. So, the investment law that is going to come out very soon will give you a good idea of what to expect if you want to invest in our country. Our economic policy also we have brought out. The main thrust of our economic policy is job creation, because we need that if we are to develop as quickly as possible. There is a high level of unemployment and a lot of hidden employment. We do not even have proper figures to tell us how bad it is. But the fact that so many of our people are going over the border as illegal migrant workers to countries like China China, and, of course, mostly to 
Thailand and Malaysia. This tells us that unemployment is a big problem. Our, our families are breaking up. You see many villages where young men of strong working age are no longer there. So many. I met, a, I met some young men who had been working in Malaysia as illegal migrant migrants for some, what, eight years. And they had never seen a city before, before they came to Rangoon. I said, you were in Malaysia for eight years. Haven't you been to a city? They said, no. They went across the border uh, through Thailand. They, got, they found their way to Malaysia. They were taken straight to a plantation. And there they've been working for eight years. And, for, and they haven't seen a city. They've never been to KL. They, 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 they were astounded by Rangoon. And, of course, we were astounded that people who had lived in Malaysia were astounded by the, the, the urbanness of Rangoon, if you like. And this is how our people have to earn uh, a subsistence living. They send money back to their families, and their families manage to build, build themselves little houses. But they don't get to setting up businesses that will allow their men to come back and to live with them. So we need to create jobs. Everywhere I went, they told me, our greatest need is jobs. In creating those jobs of the future, a few of us were at dinner last night with, some, with uh, Jack Ma. Or in fact, it was the night before. And Jack, uh, Chinese entrepreneur, internet finance, uh, going into a whole bunch of smaller rural communities in China, sees this as a gateway and a door to open up micro-business and small business opportunities in poorer regional areas across China. And there's some reasonably good data to suggest he's succeeding. Do you see a parallel possibility opening in your own country for the people that you've just described? Parallel not exactly the same because our situation is different from the Chinese situation and whatever we do we have to we, we must not lose sight of the fact that we want to build up a democratic federal union which is to say that in some instances we'll have to put political considerations before economic ones for example it is it's would be much easier to set up some uh, businesses in those parts of the country which are more developed, which have better infrastructure. But for political reasons, we must make sure that investment goes to the ethnic areas as well, which are less developed and which have fewer uh, infrastructure facilities. So we can't look at our country in the way in which you look at other countries. Now, China was all right with regard to infrastructure, for example, the roads. Now, we are very poor on all-weather roads. Burma is a monsoon country, and a lot of our roads get washed away for five months of the year. That's just not good enough. We need weatherproof roads for, for, our, for our people throughout the country, not just in the in the main areas where the majority Burmese ethnic group live, but for all the other ethnic areas as well. It's a very large country. I've been there a few times. The well, um, when you look at China, you wouldn't say Burma is very large. <laughs> I'm Australian. We're big on the map as well. But uh, no, it's a big country by um, Southeast Asian standards. Yeah, it's it's and, the biggest in Southeast Asia. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's a big population. And uh, many of us look with great, I think, optimism and enthusiasm to how not just the democracy will consolidate itself, but the economy emerges as well. Are you getting support from your ASEAN colleagues in your national mission? Um, ASEAN's been in, uh, part and parcel of the building of a regional economy. Uh, is that network of relationships helping you in your, in your economic task? We have good relations with our ASEAN neighbours. I was in Thailand recently and we had very good um, discussions with regard to the problem of our workers there and uh, we have decided that it's time that the border was marked out properly so that there are no 
unnecessary problems. So we are establishing better relations even. Well, I think um, the remarkable history of ASEAN as I've seen it is a bunch of countries who 30 or 40 years ago were at each other's throats now working extraordinarily cohesively together. Oh, were we at each other's throats? I wasn't aware of that. Uh, I, do, I, I don't think we were really at each other's throats. By which I mean the, uh, the former Southeast Asia before ASEAN came into being. No, even had, then, I don't think uh, we, we, our relation, you know, the internal relationship of the region uh, was that I was, bad. I was referring to communist Indochina, CETO and all those things, and ASEAN has been a great integrating force. I would have thought there were greater problems between Indochina and America than between Indochina and us. <laughs> And I wasn't even going to go there. <laughs> but now that you mentioned Uncle Sam, the, uh, because there are a few Americans in the audience. Um, uh, I'm glad there are some. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, and my experience of having lived in New York now for a couple of years is that your country has an extraordinarily high profile in the minds of the American people. And therefore, interest a deep interest in what uh, this country can do in their economic and broader engagement uh, with uh, Burma into the future. I see the President last week announced his intentions of lifting the remaining sanctions on Myanmar, uh, easing barriers to trade and supporting U uh, US dollar 10 million in loans to small business in Myanmar. For the US government, if I could be quite specific about that, what would you like to see more coming from Washington as far as your country's future is concerned? I'm very pleased with what they have been doing so far, and um, I appreciate everything they've done. I'm very glad sanctions have been lifted. There are those who think that it's still too early, but I don't, because uh, as I explained to Congress, sanctions were like a crutch, which we needed. Uh, but now what we need is, um, well, physiotherapy, so we can get onto our own feet without the, uh, the crutches. We need empowerment. We need, and the United States government has been doing everything they can to help us. I appreciate that. And I hope that our relationship will get better, that our friendship will be cemented over the years to come, and that we can work together. I, uh, I, I, there's nothing I can say in criticism of what the U.S. has been not doing for us. They've done as much as... Uh, they are able to do, and I, I believe in I believe in gratitude. I'm grateful to our friends for all that they have done for us and are doing for us. And I really don't want to go on saying we want more and more and more. I always say to my people, I don't want you to be a people with your hands out. I want you to be a people who appreciate what's given to you, but you take it in order to make yourself strong enough not to need help in the future. What um, a marvelous sentiment. Uh, a spirit of thankfulness in international relations rather than some of the other principles or practices we often hear and see. Finally, uh, State Councillor, in your transition to democracy, and you've referred constantly to parliamentary commissions working on this, that and the other. Um, and it's new, and you've got a whole bunch of new members of parliament. Uh, give me a sense of how the parliament itself is beginning to shake down to its new life. Here in the United States, they have something called filibusters. Uh, they're kind of fun to watch. I'm not sure they're fun to be in. Uh, in Australian parliaments, we don't have filibusters. We just have fisticuffs. Uh, so... Parliamentary democracies are a many and varied thing. How's yours evolving? And internally, how are the relationships proceeding within the institution? Well, apart from the fact that, of course, 25% of the members of our parliaments are not elected, I think um, they're getting on well. Uh, some of our regulations and, and uh, some of our procedures might seem a bit strange to you, but then... Some of your procedures seem very strange to us. <laughs> so and our we, procedures seem we, strange to us well. as well. We're doing well. The legislature, the, uh, the leg before the elections last year, I would say that the legislature was the most democratic institution in the country because we had good speakers who were fair who, and uh, who were even-handed in, 
in the, um, in the treatment of the members of parliament. And although we were a small majority, we were treated as the main opposition, which we, which we were. There were only 44 of us in the union legislature, but we were still uh, the party with the largest uh, number of, uh, of MPs after the USDP, which had the overwhelming majority. So Parliament started really to become democratized, and we are continuing with the process. And uh, I have to say that we have an excellent speaker in the lower house, a good party man, <laughs> and a very, very, very fine lawyer, and that's important. Well, knowing the rules of procedure uh, and running a House of Parliament is an art form in itself, as we've seen in all these democracies over time. To conclude, uh, State Councillor, um, you're among friends here at the Asia Society. You've been here before. Um, it'd be lovely to have you back again sometime before too many years go by to report on how things are going. So can we see you again? I'm not going to report to you, but mm. I'd be very happy to speak to you. We are here to listen. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> I'd be very, very happy to speak to you again. And, but I prefer it when, if it's a two-way conversation. That's good. Well, we'd enjoy that as well, and that's why so many of the questions that I've asked and, uh, and uh, you've accused me of having a big list here actually come from all these folk out there. So I've sought to do so representing their interests as well. It's wonderful to see you. It's just a delight to see you in this position of high office which you now hold within your country. For those uh, who have observed your career and your life with admiration for such a long period of time, so, ladies and gentlemen, please show your appreciation to Dorang San Suu Kyi. You're not going to Kinsha. ask them to applause. I don't like this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, it, <clears throat> it's your right to decide whether you want to applaud or not. <laughs> This is where you respectfully remind the State Council of Burma that I'm chairing this meeting. I can ask them to applause <laughs> if I want to. It's, gr it's great to have you. <laughs> it's great to have you. That's not democratic. You decide whether you want to applaud or not. Who wanted to applaud? <laughs> Anyone here not want to applaud? I hear silence. The democratic process for the evening is concluded. Thank you so much. <laughs>